Amen. Good morning, Rise City Church. How are you doing? Good. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Russell Woods. I'm a pastor here on staff. I do young adults here, part of the Alpha team here. I'm also part of the City Group team here. Just such an honor, as always, to get to occasionally preach to you as well. So thanks for having me back. You had no choice. Um, <laughs> Excited to wrap up. Today is our last uh, teaching on this, this series we've been on in James. Um, today we're in James chapter 5. And as anyone knows, if you go to Bible college, this is what you learn. When you're learning about James, you have to talk about Tom Cruise. So I'm going to talk about Tom Cruise a bit as I open. Um, I love Tom Cruise because as a short guy, he gives us hope that short guys still have a place in Hollywood. And I know with Tom Cruise, I know what I'm going to get. You could call that one-dimensional, but I call that just, you know, faithful acting. That intense look, that intense run, rigid run, you know, and that intense yell. You know what you're going to get, right? So I love Tom Cruise. On a more serious note, one of my favorite movies of Tom's, uh, not Tropic Thunder, um, is Valkyrie. Uh, Valkyrie, anyone seen that movie? Okay, all right, good. You guys watch movies? Okay. It's 2023, okay. Um, one of my favorite movies of his is Valkyrie, which is a World War II movie, but it's actually the perspective of Germans within Nazi Germany trying to topple Hitler's regime by assassinating Hitler. And so Tom Cruise's character, Colonel Stauffenberg, I had to practice saying that for you, Colonel Stauffenberg, before we even get to meeting his character, the movie opens with two German generals trying to take out the head of the snake, take out Hitler. And they're planting this small bomb in one of his planes, and the movie opens, they've planted the bomb, and the whole movie opens, and the, the two generals are just sitting in a smoke-filled room, because it's, you know, the 40s and everyone's smoking. They're sitting in this room by the telephone just waiting just waiting, and you get this sense that either good or bad, can that phone just ring for this waiting to stop. It's a great, it's a brilliant scene, and that theme of waiting actually is throughout the movie, but the movie opens so perfectly, capturing the theme and the pain of waiting. And that is what we're talking about today. Not Tom Cruise, we're talking about James and waiting and some suffering. You see, what James has for us today is a theological vision for waiting and for suffering. James is gonna give us proper expectation today. A facing of reality that though we are people of the resurrection, we are also people of the cross. Though we are people of the re resurrection, we are also people of the cross. We can face pain and the chaos of this life because of that reality. Death and suffering come before resurrection. They always do. So if you would turn with me, if you haven't already, to James chapter 5. I'm going to read our text from beginning to end. Um, James chapter 5, starting in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. 
you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may, be not, may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation." So what James is doing here, we're kind of encountering a pivot in his writing. He's been writing to the community of believers, specifically those who are wealthy, who hold power in that community, rebuking them for not using their power, their wealth, and their influence to serve the least of these in that community. But now he's talking to those in the church who have been wronged by their brothers and sisters or who haven't been helped or who have been neglected by them. And he's speaking to them. So his words are for a specific people, enduring specific pain, but they have universal meaning for us today. Why is that? Because suffering is a part of the human experience. Waiting is part of the Christian journey with God. Suffering is a part of this human experience, and waiting is part of the journey with God. There is no hack. There is no YouTube video you can watch to get out of it. There is no shortcut. There is no cheat code. You in this life will experience suffering and waiting. But in your suffering and waiting, this is what James has for us. God is doing a deep work. He isn't absent. He's doing a deep work in your suffering and in your waiting. And as you wait and as you suffer, you have reason to hope. Those are the two things James has for us today. A few years ago, um, quite a few years ago now, uh, my brother-in-law, my wife's brother was graduating with his electrical engineering degree. I don't even know what that means. I'm a pastor, whatever. Um, But we traveled with our one kiddo at the time to the East Coast with Amy's, my wife's sister, and her kiddo, two eight-month-olds. We traveled to the East Coast to celebrate his graduation. It's just been a long road for him, and we wanted to honor him by going out and celebrating with him. It was a great trip, just a super fun time getting to see his life in D.C., very different than our lives in Portland. Um, But as we're flying back, we had a connecting flight that would fly into Denver, Colorado, and then fly to Portland. Some of you who have done a connecting flight to Denver already know what I'm about to say. We fly into Denver... And the pilot gets on the intercom as we're descending and says, hey, there's been a bit of a snowstorm, so expect some delays when you get in. And, of course, I'm thinking, it's Denver, Colorado. We'll be fine, right? They're prepared for snow. It's Colorado, right? They weren't um, at all. (laughs) And when we land, 
I, I kid you not, they get on the intercom again and say, hey, there's been um, kind of a mix up with staffing. There's not enough staff to clear the runways and clear the gates. And so we land with our two eight-month-olds in this metal tube, and we sit there for three hours. Three hours. Now, it's not a big deal, but if you don't have kids, um, you won't understand this. When you're in that metal tube, and you're holding the kid, and it's crying, like, your life's on the line. (laughs) People around you, I mean, could turn on you very quickly, and things can get really dicey, okay? So three hours we're sitting, and we're waiting, and finally we get deboarded. We're in the the airport. We're, We're going, okay, good. And it's a quick turnaround, okay? It's like, oh, 10 minutes till we're boarding our Portland flight. Not only are we not missing the flight, it's a quick turnaround. Great. We get on the next plane, and guess what? We're not going anywhere. Because of the snowstorm, the flight crew and the pilot had reached their maximum hours, and then the sub crews couldn't get to them because of the snow. And so we're debating and waiting on, like the crew is amazing crew. I'll never forget them. They were so kind. They saw the pain in all of our eyes in the metal tube. And they're like, we'll, we'll do the extra hours. We're good for it. Let's go. But we had to wait on their higher ups to give us the approval. And I kid you not, we waited for another three hours. Some of you have had way worse than that. I don't care. I'm on the mic now, Okay. <laughs> It was terrible. It was terrible. You know, we, people were so kind to us. They're letting us rock our babies where they make the coffee and all that. It was great. It was fine. But I share that story for two reasons. First is do not say yes to a connecting flight in Denver, okay? <laughs> like, that's enough. You can stop paying attention to me right now. No charge. Here we go. The second part is just to illustrate the pain of waiting, because if I, as I tell that story now, it's six hours, right? We're laughing about it now, right? Not a big deal. In the span of my life, in the span of being a father, right? It's not a big deal. Six hours, no problem. But when I was in hour four, three, five, six, God, take me now, right? God, take me now. When you're in the middle of waiting, it feels like forever, doesn't it? When you're in the middle of waiting, it feels like forever. You get stuck in traffic. The Wi-Fi stops working. God help us. <laughs> or more serious things, you feel stuck at a dead-end job. You're stuck waiting to find a spouse, waiting to have kids, maybe waiting for breakthrough in parts of your character where you keep trying, you keep trying, but you keep failing, you keep failing. But perhaps the most taboo area of our lives in the church where we don't like to talk about our waiting is actually in our faith, our relationship with God, where we feel that sense of waiting or feeling stuck in our faith. Maybe you come every week and you look around and you, um, from your perspective, you see other people who they're moving up and to the right, right? They're, they're, from what you see, they're connected with God, they're growing, their emotions are high and on fire with the Lord, it's good, but you don't feel that way. Maybe you feel distance from God. 
you see others progressing, but you feel stuck. And I know in a room this size, many of you feel distance from God. You feel distance from God. And I just want to say one thing to you today. If you are feeling stuck in your faith, there is nothing wrong with you. Seriously, if you feel stuck in your faith, if you're desiring more, but your, your emotional connection to God isn't quite where you want it to be, there's nothing wrong with you. Rather, you are experiencing what the writers of Scripture and the early church had category and language for. You are experiencing, or you could be experiencing, a spiritual wall or the dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul. You see, feeling stuck or disconnected from God is actually a feature, not a problem. Being stuck with God is a feature, not a defect in your faith. See, often in the Western church, we boil down this Christianity thing to moments, right? You're a Christian because you said yes to Jesus. You're a Christian because of this breakthrough that happened in your life. You're a Christian because of that moment of healing. That's all true, but the reality is our faith is not one or two moments. It is a journey. It's a lifetime. And on any journey, you're going to have mountaintop moments, but you're also going to have valleys. You're going to hit walls. You're going to have dark nights of the soul. This is a part of walking with Jesus. So the question you're probably asking is, how do I know? How do I know I'm in a dark night of the soul? How do I know I'm hitting a wall? This is what Pete Scazzaro says. How do we know we are in a dark night of the soul? Our good feelings of God's presence evaporate. We feel the door of heaven has been shut as we pray. Darkness helplessness, weariness, a sense of failure or defeat, barrenness, emptiness, dryness descends upon us. We can't see what God is doing, and we see little visible fruit in our lives. Listen to some of these words. Barrenness, emptiness, dryness. The walls we encounter on our journey with Jesus are not necessarily a sign that we're falling away from him. Rather, in these seasons, painful as they are, God is doing deep work in you. He's doing the deep work in you. He's bringing you into humility. As you struggle, as you doubt, as you feel distance from God, he's removing judgmentalism from you as you hear from other people when they're struggling and they're doubting and they're longing for more in their faith. You say, oh, I've been through that too. So when someone else is going through that kind of struggle, you don't feel threatened. You just say, yeah, I've, I've been there. 
He's trying to bring you into humility. Another thing he might be doing in you, he's, he may be removing your faith from the dependence on good feelings. I need you to know that what we do here on Sunday, every Sunday you come, the band, whoever is serving you, we are committed to excellence. We're, we're, we see that as a sacrifice to the Lord. We love excellence here. But I wonder, for my own life and for, for us in the room, man, could you engage in worship in the same way if you were in the underground church in China, where their form of excellence is just getting one Bible in the room? There's no band. There's no lights. God may be teaching you in this season that he is always present to you regardless of how emotionally present you are to him. That may be something he is doing. Another thing he may be teaching you is that expanding your category for God as a good father. God as a good father is gonna bring you goodness in your life, blessing in your life, gifts, joys, but also God as a good father is going to bring you tests and challenges. He's gonna teach you that in suffering and in valleys, you will meet him in ways you cannot meet him on the mountaintop. He's going to teach you that in valleys and in dryness, you will meet him and know him in ways you cannot know him when things are going well and feeling good. In, in January of 2021, we had our second kiddo, Callum, my first boy. Very stoked. A month later... Literally a month later, in February of 2021, I'm climbing up a ladder. I'm working my normal nine-to-five job. This is something I do every day. I'm climbing up a ladder, and as I step off the ladder onto this roof, the ladder slips from under me, and I just fall straight to the ground. I'm a pretty optimistic person. The first thing I did when I landed was, okay, good, you know. Back was fine, neck was fine, but what happened to me is I had shattered the whole right side of my arm. Broken ligaments, broken bone, we can have a slide of that. Again, I know some of you have had worse. This is my moment though, okay? It was really bad. Um, so that was the break I had. There's some, some good hardware they put in. I actually don't know where that picture's from. I think it's in a text thread with my siblings. But that device down there was this really great medieval device where um, I put my arm in this sling and this sling had like this mechanism where I could turn the sling. Some of you know, and you turn it and it just slowly extends your arm. And this was like my life for like six months, was just three to four times a day sitting on a chair, watching my, my family and life go by and I'm just sitting extending my arm, waiting for it to hurt, stop. Thank God for Netflix, man. Good Lord. <laughs> that was the beginning of 2021 for me. Had a baby, broke my arm, couldn't hold my baby, couldn't help my wife. Actually, my wife had to help me, so she immediately after February had three kids, you know, two kids now, but now she's helping me. And if you know a little bit more about my story, we had also planted a church that year, 
And if you know anything about ministry or business or momentum, uh, anything in COVID was not bound to do well typically. You know, here's an exception. My church plant was not. We planted in the midst of COVID, in the midst of this broken arm, in the midst of all this unknown. And my common refrain that year in my prayer was this, God, what the heck are you doing? We started off before we church planted with like 70 people interested in following us, and then COVID happened, and then it was like 15. God, what the heck are you doing? I have this baby, my my first son in January, and then I fall off a roof. God, what the heck are you doing? And, And I didn't know it at the time, but this is crazy that my broken arm and being a a failed church planter brought me here. But then I was saying to the Lord as I walked with him, what are you doing? Please stop. What are you doing? Please stop. And I think some of you are asking that question in your season of life right now. This is what James says in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Notice how he says, be patient twice. It's like he knows it's really hard. But what he's also saying is, God is trying to birth precious fruit in you right now. Isn't that interesting? Precious fruit, not just fruit, precious fruit. There is something God is doing in you right now that he cannot do apart from this waiting and this pain. He is trying to produce precious fruit in you right now. So be patient. Hold on. Don't give up. There are things he is doing in you now that he won't be able to do when you're on the mountaintop. So that's waiting. But now we have to talk a bit about suffering. He's asking us to wait well, but he's also differently yet similarly asking us to suffer well. Here's what he says in verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, James is continuing in this, in this passage that, on the assumption that life is hard. You will encounter suffering. It's an assumption. Yet, even in your suffering, God is near. He says, look to the prophets. Look to Job. They endured suffering steadfast. That's how they endured suffering, with steadfastness. They suffered well. That's really interesting, because if you've read the story of Job, let me just give you a, a, a quick context of who Job is. Job was the most successful man of his time, okay? He was the Jeff Bezos. That's not a better, let's go Elon Musk in this room, okay? 
He was the Elon Musk of his time, you know, had it all, wealth, children, property, a good life, and Job lost it all. He lost his fortune. He lost his status. His marriage fractured. His children all died. And then he lost his health. And as he loses it all, Job cries out to God, let the day perish on which I was born. Why did I not die at birth, come out of the womb and expire? He tears his clothes, he shaves his head, he weeps, he moves from his house to the town garbage dump to live. Yet James says he was steadfast. What's going on here? I think for so many of us in America, in our Western context, we are so inundated with our comfortable lives. I don't mean that is a bad thing necessarily, but we are so insulated often from death and suffering, where so many other parts of the world, it is a part of life. Maybe we don't face death because of our comforts, or maybe we don't face hard things because of our distractions and our devices. Or maybe we've been given a theological paradigm that is not helpful when we face the darkness of life. Maybe we have no room in our categories, in our theology for mystery, for loss, and for sadness. Maybe that's what's really at the heart of it. We look at Job or we look at Job's in our life, people who are walking through suffering, and we say things to them like, well, hey, brother, rejoice in the Lord always. Philippians 4. Romans 8. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Those verses are true, but I think sometimes when we throw verses like that out at people, we're not really believing in the truth. We're running from their pain and darkness because we don't want that to drag us down. Here's where I'm, where I'm going with this, guys. We have to make room in the church to grieve. Pain is a part of life. We are people of the resurrection and the cross. We have to make room for the darkness of life and grief. We have to make room for that. This guy named Jesus in the New Testament, that's my dry humor, sorry, um, who had the most concrete, confident reason for hope, cried, wept, and grieved. If there was ever a person who would never have to grieve, it would be him, and he still grieved. As we do life together in community and according to the right social contract within your relationships, in the church, as we ask one another, how are you doing? We need to make a little bit more room to hear responses like, you know what, I'm, I'm really sad right now. I'm grieving right now. I'm really hurting right now. You know, I'm not doing okay. God, what the heck are you doing? Or like Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
For some of us, our theological paradigms, we would say, Jesus, nah, stop it. You're not believing in the Lord's promises. Rejoice in the Lord always. And that story of Job, who lost everything, if you know a bit about that story, um, a lot of the dialogue of Job happens between his three or four friends. And one of the major themes of the story is that Job was truly innocent and he was just purely suffering, though his friends felt something was wrong with him. So there's a lot of critique of the friends. But before that dialogue begins, the friends hear what Job had gone through and they rush to Job, and the text says that they sat with Job for seven days and seven nights in the dirt. That number seven in the Bible is a a representation of goodness and perfection. They were off on a lot of things in the text, but in that moment, they were perfect friends. They sat with Job in the dirt. So my friends, as we learn to grieve well in this community, you need to sit with the friend at the bedside. You need to sit with the friend in the dirt. Don't throw biblical cliches because you don't like the bad feelings. Sit with your friends. Buy them groceries. Buy them a meal. Be okay with the silence. Pray for them, but just your presence is the win. We have to learn how to grieve here because we are people of reality, not unreality, and there's enough unreality in the world, and grief is a part of life. We have to learn how to grieve here. Sit with those in darkness, in their darkness, in the dirt. That's how you grieve well. But for those of you who are in it, James has a bit more for you. There's a way to suffer well. There's a way to be steadfast. Verse 8, this is what James says. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, let your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the key. This is the key to being steadfast for James. It's an established heart, established in the courage of ultimate reality, which is this. Jesus is Lord. That is ultimate reality. Jesus is Lord. One day his victory over death and suffering will be complete. And knowing that and believing that is how we suffer well. Establishing our hearts in the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is king regardless of this darkness in front of me. Though life may throw you, though you may cry out, though darkness closes in, we can be steadfast in the core. We can be people whose yes is yes and whose no is no. We can grieve and cry out in one hand, and we can hold hope in the other, and we can hold both in the same heart. And this is what followers of Jesus have done from the very beginning. There's so many layers to how the early church changed the world you and I now live in and are very comfortable because of them. 
Well, one thing historians look at that changed the world of the early, of the early world 2,000 years ago was how Christians grieved. The way they grieved was a layer of how they changed the world. When the plagues came, they didn't run. They stayed with those who were sick. We can't even get enough toilet paper when ours come, okay? Can't share toilet paper. They stayed when the plagues came. Christians modeled fearlessness and poise as they walked to their deaths because of their faith. The reason they were able to do this was because death was not the end. There is a resurrection coming. They were people of the resurrection. This is what Tim Keller says about the early church and their grief. The Stoic doctrine of salvation is resolutely anonymous and impersonal. It promises us eternity, certainly, but of a non-personal kind in an oblivious fragment of the cosmos. But Christians believed in the resurrection through its confirmation by hundreds of eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. That is our future. And that meant that we are saved as individual selves. Our personalities will be sustained, beautified, and perfected after death. And so our ultimate future is one of perfect, unhindered love, love with God and others. That is our future. That is how Job was steadfast, the ability to hold grief and that future and that hope in the same heart. Unshakable, courageous, established hope as you freely say to the grief and darkness in front of you, this is not the way things should be. Both. About a year and a half ago, half ago my, uh, my wife's father, Jim, or as our, our kids call him, our bapa, um, was diagnosed with lymphoma cancer. And this last year or so, he's been fighting it. The first round, um, uh, he, he beat it. It was easy. It felt like a blip on the radar. It was really scary, but it was just a blip for our family. About four months ago, we got a scan back. They had returned. And fighting it much differently the second time. If those of you who have walked with people with cancer, when it returns, you know things are not going well. Um, And Jim's papa's health deteriorated so quickly the second time, um, his doctors on the care team said to him about two months ago now, um, we want you to seriously consider hospice care as you face your last days um, because you need a way. Do you want to spend your last days here in the, <laughs> the sterile hospital with the two-visitor limit, or do you want to be at home with those you love? And so it was on July 3rd, that we as a family made the decision for hospice care. And July 4th, he passed away. And we I'm still, as a family, we are grieving. We are walking through this. And so many of you who, who know about it have asked me, um, how are you doing? How's Amy? And my response has often been, we're fine. You know, we're okay. 
Because what I'm doing in that moment is I don't want you to have to share my grief with me. I don't want to bring down the moment. I don't want to burden you as you're asking me how I'm doing. But the reality is we're not fine. We're not doing okay because this is not the way things should be. Bapa, our, our kid's grandfather, is gone. My, my kids won't have their Bapa to grow up with. That is not the way things should be. And we're, we're sitting on, this is the morning of July 4th, all our siblings were sitting, <laughs> he's on, Bapa's on the couch, non-responsive, but able to hear us. And we're sitting around him, just holding emotion we don't know what to do with. And my, uh, our grandma Eva, we call her grandma mother, she's our great, our kid's great grandma, um, comes in. And she sits next to Bapa, and she just grabs his hand. And she's this tiny little thing. She's five foot nothing. She's just like a joy and a beacon of hope for our family. She sits next to Jim. We're all sitting around not knowing what to do with ourselves. He's unresponsive, but he can hear us. And he she just grabs his hand, and she just says, Jim, I love you. You're a good man. And I'm angry that you're going before me. You're not supposed to go before me. And you've been a good husband. And you've loved my daughter well. And we release you. And she came, I'm trying to paint this picture of we didn't know what to do in the darkness. And you know what she did? She just came in, she was just honest. We release you. You can go now. We love you. And that, and you guys can pull up this slide, that opened up for us a moment, we just gathered around Bapa, and we just put our hands on him, and we prayed over him, and we thanked him, and we honored him, we read scripture over him, and we worshiped together, because grandma mother knew what to do in the darkness. She said, I love you, and I'll see you soon. This is not the way things should be, and there's hope. So a couple things for you all today. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to grieve. But in your grief, hold on to hope. His name is Jesus. In your grief, hold on to hope. His name is Jesus. Um, and I'd like to, today, because we are people of truth, and I know people in this room are suffering and hurting. I want to let you into the sacred moment we had a little bit. And I'd like to read the scripture we read over our Bapa to you. This is Psalm 23. And I just invite you to close your eyes and just receive whatever the Holy Spirit would do through his word today. This is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me 
Where? In the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we... um, We live in the already, not yet. You have already won the day. You have already defeated death, but you haven't fully defeated death. That victory has not yet come to completion. So God, we keep waiting. And we just say to you, as the saints have always said to you, come, Lord Jesus. You will make all things new, but until then, We invite you into our grief. We invite you into the darkness of our lives. We know you are there, but we so often do not have eyes to see you. God, I'm praying for anyone today who is suffering, who is walking through grief, that they would be opened to the reality that you are doing deep work in them. And they have deep hope as well. God, we are people of the resurrection as well as the cross. We are people of reality, and reality is dark. God, would you help us to be a community that can hold reality and hope? In Jesus' name we pray.